The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. We'll keep your Bible open as we look at God's Word. It's so good to be together as we gather together. It's good of you to make the trek in light of the weather. And as we begin this morning, let me set this hourglass right here. This is not our high-tech way of tracking how long the sermon goes. Instead, this hourglass is a symbol of what's taking place here in Daniel 5, which you just heard read. And by the end of this sermon, my hope is that this hourglass would be a deeply encouraging picture for all of us as we consider how God rules over this world. Would you join me as we pray? Father in heaven, We want to hear your voice this morning. We want to see the truth of your word. So give us eyes to see and hearts to receive what you have for us. Let your excellent word go forth so that we might be transformed and encouraged and changed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever prayed the prayer How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? And then you can kind of fill in the blank. How long until you answer this request? How long until my children come back? How long until this request gets answered? That prayer, how long, is a prayer of longing and wanting and questioning. If you've ever prayed that prayer, you're in good company. It shows up four different times in the Psalms. Let me just uh, read each one of them. Psalm 13:1 says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? This is the plea of those who are despairing. Or Psalm 35:17 says, How long, O Lord, will you look on, rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions? This is the prayer of those who are under attack. Or Psalm 79, 5, how long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? This is the prayer of those who are under God's hand of discipline and judgment. Or Psalm 89, 46, how long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? This is the cry of those who feel like God is absent. This is the type of prayer. How long, O Lord, that we pray when we see a senseless war around us, when we see injustice all around us, when we have wandering and wayward children making poor decisions, or we see the flourishing of the wicked and the persecution of God's people. It's the type of question we ask when we're teetering between dependence and despair. When we're teetering between hopefulness and hopelessness. And yet this is exactly all of the things the people of God were feeling in the book of Daniel. In Daniel 5 in particular. They're saying, how long, O Lord, are you going to be absent? How long will you hide your face from us? We're still in exile decade after decade. And we're under your hand of judgment. How long will we be judged? 
This is what they're feeling in this moment. And they're saying, how long is it going to take until you deliver us? We see these glimpses of your grace in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar. He, he praises the Most High God, and yet we're still in exile on the other side of Nebuchadnezzar's death. How long, O Lord? When will all that is wrong be made right once again? Daniel 5 answers that question for us this morning. Answers the question of how long, O Lord, but not exactly in the way that we might expect. God's timetable is an our timetable. God's plans aren't our plans. And so Nebuchadnezzar, or actually Daniel 5, shows us what he's doing. And so it takes place about 30 years after Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4. So we fast forward about 30 more years from the end of chapter 4 to the beginning of chapter 5. And it fast forwards actually to the very last day of the Babylonian Empire before it falls to the Persians. Daniel is now an old man of about 80 years old. Chapter 4 and 5 form a bit of a pair. God humbles Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, and he humbles Belshazzar in chapter 5. And the bridge between the two chapters is the final phrase of chapter 4 in verse 37. Those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. So our plan this morning is to walk through these 31 verses and then look at the conclusion and application. And before we jump into the text, I have to address two problems or two uh, issues that come up often when people look at chapter 5 of Daniel. The first problem is that historical records show that King Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon, not Belshazzar. He's not mentioned at all, King Nabonidus, by Daniel at all in his account. And the second issue is that Nebuchadnezzar is called Belshazzar's father multiple times, even though most scholars don't think that he was his biological father. So how, how do we make sense of these two issues? Well, the first requires a little bit of context. After Nebuchadnezzar's death in 562 B.C., there were three other kings that followed. Each one had really short tenures of about one to two years until there was King Nabonidus, who assumed the throne in 556 B.C. So why does Daniel call Belshazzar the king of Babylon? Well, I think there's actually a really good reason. And this is important because critical scholars for hundreds of years now had said, look at the book of Daniel. It's totally made up. This isn't true. You silly Christians believing in something, there's no archaeological evidence that Belshazzar was the king. It was King Nabonidus. Why are you believing this? Well, the reason is now we have since found 37 archival texts in the 1900s that not only prove that Belshazzar was a real person, but he was actually the son of King Nabonidus, and he served as the co-regent with his father. So that means that they shared the kingship and were co-rulers. So King Nabonidus lived and primarily ruled 500 miles south in what would be modern Saudi Arabia. And he put his son in Babylon during his 17-year reign so that his son was essentially the king in Babylon, Belshazzar. This was the crown prince. Now, why does all of this matter? It sounds a little bit technical and the dates I'm not tracking with and all of that. 
It matters because Daniel is a historically reliable record that is supported by archaeological evidence. This isn't make-believe, but these are real historical records that we can build our faith foundation upon. These things are true. I didn't know any of this until I was studying it. And it's another confirmation that God's word is reliable and true. We can stand on it and even build our lives upon it. And there's one hint in the text throughout that gives us this, that sort of supports this understanding. Do you know what it is? Shows up in verse 7, verse 16, and verse 29. When Belshazzar says, interpret this dream, whoever gets it, I'll make you not second greatest in the kingdom, but you'll be the third ruler. Meaning, His dad, King Nabonidus, was the king. He is the co-regent of Babylon, so he's second in command. And so whoever interprets this dream, they get third ruler in the kingdom. Now, the second issue is a little bit more uh, easier to explain. Belshazzar is called, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is called Belshazzar's father six different times. Verse 2, 11, three times verse 13 and verse 18. He's also called the son of Nebuchadnezzar. And if you have an ESV Bible, you can usually see that there's a little kind of subscript or a little footnote there. And basically in Semitic languages like Hebrew and Aramaic, father could mean one's immediate father, but it could also mean grandfather, ancestor, or for kings, it would be one's predecessor. And the same is true of son. It could be of offspring or grandson or descendant or a successor which is why Jesus is often referred to as the son of David. He's the descendant of King David. Or Israelites called themselves the sons of Jacob, or the descendants of Jacob. So that's how we understand father and son here in this passage. So here we go. Scene one, Belshazzar's celebration gets crashed by God. Verses one through nine. Verse one says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. So imagine this is less like a dinner party hosted at the Hilton and more like a frat party during spring break. There's this emphasis on a great feast and drinking wine. And normally the king in these situations wouldn't even dine with his subjects. But here it looks like he's leading in the drinking festivities. Verse 2 says, Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, so he's filled with wine, inebriated, and he commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought so that he and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. And they did, and they praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And if you're reading this as a God-fearing Israelite, you immediately, all your alarms go off and you think, this is something that should not be done. You're desecrating the very things of God. Even a pagan like Nebuchadnezzar never attempted such a thing, perhaps out of superstition. But this begins to paint a picture for us of Belshazzar. He's an arrogant and prideful man, and he desecrates the temple vessels. He has no fear of the Lord whatsoever. And to add insult to injury, not only do they take those vessels out, not only do they drink from them, but then they praise the gods of gold. This would be like some of us 
uh, maybe for you kids who are here this morning, when you come down for breakfast and you sit at the kitchen table and, and you maybe eat some bacon and eggs and some berries and yogurt, you don't say, praise the gods of bacon and, and, and berries and pancakes. You look at your mom and dad and you say, thank you for making breakfast. And then you pray and you say, thank you, Lord, for giving us all of these things to enjoy. It would be silly and ridiculous to praise the gods of bacon or coffee, though we really appreciate bacon and coffee, don't we? And Belshazzar's idolatry begins to set the stage for God's dramatic entrance to crash the party. If we look in verse 5, immediately... You get this detached human hand writing on the wall. It's a little bit creepy and weird. And then verse 6 says, The king's color changed, his thoughts alarmed him, his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. This fourfold description shows he's very, very, very afraid. And then we get this fifth description. In verse 7, the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters. The the picture there is that he screamed constantly until his wise men finally came in. And then he says, verse 7, whoever reads this writing shows me its interpretation, shall be clothed with purple, have a chain of gold around his neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. The king is very motivated to get this writing interpreted. The wise men couldn't do it. And the king remains alarmed. This moves us into our second scene, where the queen counsels to call Daniel. This is in verses 10 through 16. In this second scene, the queen tells King Belshazzar, there's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. We've heard that repetition before, haven't we, in chapter 4. Daniel continues to be called the one in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Now, there's two things we want to note here. The queen is probably referring to the queen mother, which is the wife of King Nabonidus. Because we were told back in chapter two, uh, verse 2 that Belshazzar's wives were already all present at the party. And she has knowledge about Daniel. So she's been around and she remembers Daniel because this is 30 years later from chapter 4, and probably even much longer than that when he first interpreted the dream in chapter 2. And Daniel is described as one having wisdom and excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. The second thing we ought to notice is that Daniel is now long forgotten. He's either been retired, demoted, or just forgotten in the kingdom. So that the queen mother has to bring his name before Belshazzar. Now, Daniel comes in, stands before the king, and the king largely repeats what the queen mother has already said, but she admits one, uh, actually, King Belshazzar admits one particular word. In verse 14, he says, you're the one in whom is the gods, not holy gods. And and most commentators think, I think that he's in thinking that Daniel's interpretation is going to be of judgment. And if he really believed that he was of the holy gods, then he wouldn't have done what he had done with the vessels. Now, what's striking in this is that Daniel's reputation after decade after decade after decade of serving in Babylon as an exile in the political realm, no less, over six decades, everyone still speaks highly of him. They want to kill him, 
uh, we'll see in the next chapter, but they can't help but respect him. Now, I think it's important for us this morning that to see that the main thrust of the book of Daniel, which we've said it again and again, is not mainly about Daniel, but rather about the sovereignty of God. But what we can see is Daniel's example of faithfulness. Can you imagine working in a field like politics for three, four, five, six decades and continuing to remain faithful to God and not compromising? Daniel did it because God gave him favor. He possessed the very spirit of God in him to empower him to persevere. And so for each one of us this morning, Perhaps you're in a workplace that feels political. Maybe you are working in politics. Maybe in the public schools. Maybe in local government. Maybe in law enforcement or a small business owner. And pressures are mounting all around us. Threats to compromise. Whether you're in the boardroom or the break room. The questions are come. The temptations come to compromise. And you're thinking, what do I do? And yet what we need to see in Daniel chapter 5 this morning is that no matter how great the pressure, we need to remember that we don't just have the spirit of the holy gods. We have the spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God dwelling within us, working within us so that we might stand faithful to him wherever he has placed us. He is empowering us to live faithfully. God will help us to be courageous and winsome, to give us wisdom and light and understanding. And so don't doubt for a minute that God is at work in your workplace, in your situation, in your life. Whether you rise in the ranks of leadership or you get thrown into a lion's den, God will sustain his people to live faithfully. This takes us into the third scene, verses 17 to 29. Daniel foretells God's judgment. Daniel says in verse 17, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. I don't think Daniel's trying to be rude. I I, I get this image of Daniel is an old man. He's now 80 years old and he could just care less about what other people think. It's kind of like sometimes I think of the old guy who just, feels free to pass gas because he doesn't care what other people think around him. It's this picture of, I have no use for your purple clothes. I have no use for your gold chain. I have no use for your power. I have seen God's faithfulness for far too long to either be bribed or to stand in fear. Thanks, but no thanks. Not the most endearing way for Daniel to respond to the king, but then he goes into this speech as he begins to interpret this dream. And look with me at verses 18 to 23. We're going to read it again, and I'm going to make commentary as we go through it. He says in verse 18 of Daniel 5, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your predecessor, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all the peoples, the nations and the languages trembled and feared before King Nebuchadnezzar. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. Nebuchadnezzar was able to do whatever he wanted. He was that powerful. 
But verse 20, but when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. Those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. He was driven from among the children of mankind. So he's given him a recap of chapter four. His mind was made like that of a beast. His dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven. The greatest of all time, the goat, became like a goat. Until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets it over whom he will. And you, his successor, Belteshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And then hear this last portion in verse 23. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which you do not see or hear or even know. But the God in whose hand is your very breath that gives you your life and breath in every moment and whose are all your ways you have not honored. You could hear a pin drop in that room. Daniel drops the mic. He lays down the hammer in that particular moment. And he says, the audacity of you to worship gods that you do not know, see, or hear, and for the one true God for you to ignore. It's really striking. Belshazzar has committed lots of different sins, I imagine, over the course of his life. Fornication, adultery, murder, oppression, unjust weights. And yet here he's judged for dishonoring God. And people have been crying out for a long time. How long, O Lord? How long are we going to be in exile? How long are we going to be under the thumb of this evil, wicked king? And God is saying, not yet. Not yet. In my perfect time. God doesn't just end Belshazzar's life that night. He actually ends the Babylonian kingdom once for all. And so Belshazzar was right to be full of fear. Now, Daniel gives the interpretation. We see that in 24 to 29. And many wonder, why couldn't the other wise men read the writing on the wall? And most commentators think it was written like ancient Hebrew, so it had no vowels and no spaces. So you had to figure out where the spaces go and where all the vowels go. And so Daniel interprets, Mini, your days are numbered and they have come to an end. What he's saying is that time is up for Belshazzar and time is up for Babylon. Who holds time in his hand? Is it not I, the Lord? The Most High God has said, time is up. Tekel, you've been weighed and found wanting. This suggests that Belshazzar has been assessed by God. He's been looked over and he's been cast aside. He's come up short. Nebuchadnezzar was humbled and restored. And Belshazzar is humbled permanently that evening. Parson. This is the singular form of Perez 
or actually Parson, Daniel used the singular form, Perez, which was a half mina and sounded like the Aramaic words for divided and Persia. And the point here is that the vision from Daniel 2 of the golden head that would give way to the silver kingdom is now come to pass. The kingdom of Babylon would fall that night and the Medo Persian kingdom would begin. And afterwards, Daniel is indeed rewarded. He's made the third ruler of the kingdom, though that doesn't mean much when the kingdom falls that night. And then we come to the conclusion in verses 30 and 31. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Why do they tell us Darius's age? No one else in the entire book has had their age disclosed. I think it's for this reason. Darius would have been born right around the time when Daniel interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2. And so right when that dream had come about, that Babylonian kingdom is going to fall, there was an infant child that was just born right around that time who would then come and take over. What that illustrates is that God is sovereignly in control of all of human history. There's not a single thing that's outside of his control. You may have been praying for decades for something to come about, for something to change, for something to to turn. And God has been planning it. Maybe that individual that brings about the transformation of your child is just an infant right now and in 30 years it'll come to pass or or whatever the resources are that you need the, the check is in the mail whatever it may be god is sovereignly in control of all things even in the rise and falls of kingdoms so the main point of daniel 5 is that our sovereign god judges the wicked and oversees the rise and fall of all kings and kingdoms. Those who lift themselves up against the Lord of heaven will indeed be cut down. And as we look at the news and at the world around us, and some of us are filled with fear and anxiety, and we think, is someone going to spark a nuclear war? And what's that going to look like? And yet God, the Lord of heaven and earth, the most high God will bring down those who are lifted up against him. The aim of Daniel 5 is to encourage God's people. Even though you're in exile, even though you're under God's hand of judgment, and even though you're praying, how long, O Lord, when are you going to come through? The Lord of heaven says, in my perfect timing. In my perfect timing. We can be assured that all of his works are right. All of his ways are just. And he does according to his will. And so this morning, Daniel 5 is to help us go from asking, How long, O Lord? To now asking, Help me to trust you until it comes about. Help me to trust you. Help me to cleave to your promises until whatever it is comes about according to your wisdom. Romans 15.4 says, Whatever was written in former days, like Daniel 5, was written for our instruction 
so that we might be warned to not lift ourselves up against the God of heaven, and that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So this morning, as we look at Daniel 5 and we see God judge a wicked king and tear down the Babylonian empire, we are to be filled with hope. God is still in control. He sits on his throne and there is no president, no prime minister, no ruler that is outside of his control. And there is no one who can lift themselves up against the Lord of heaven and not be cut down. And in fact, God will use them as his instrument until the exact right time. We were just praying in the prayer room earlier. This isn't the manuscript, but we were praying. Many people for decades now have been praying for Eastern Europe. How will the gospel go forth? And now we have the largest migration of people from Ukraine into all of these surrounding countries. And oh, pray that God would use it to bring about revival in Eastern Europe. We couldn't have planned it. We wouldn't have planned it this way, but God could do it. And so let's pray that the Lord of heaven would have mercy upon Eastern Europe and use all the Ukrainians pouring into Poland and Moldova and everywhere else and all the humanitarian workers that come to say, I know things feel like they have no hope, but let me point you to the one who is hope himself. As we close, I have three applications that are in the manuscript that I want to draw out. The first is to seek the mercy of the judge. Seek the mercy of the judge. We, we live in a world today where everyone is talking about justice and injustice. Everyone wants justice. We just have different definitions and standards for determining what is, in fact, just. What offenses should be punished and how? What offenses should be forgiven? When is there a miscarriage of justice and when is justice being served? Daniel reminds us that though we all long for justice, no one wants injustice to flourish against us and we don't want injustice to flourish in our world. Our longing for justice is good. But Daniel 5 is pointing us to this greater fundamental truth that God is the one who judges and he is coming to judge. And in that day, when he comes to judge every person for every word, every thought, every deed and action, will we be weighed and found wanting? That's the question for us this morning. And only those who call upon, who humble themselves and put themselves at the mercy of the great judge will be rescued, will be forgiven. Everyone else that says, no, 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 I, I've been good enough, will be lost, will be judged for every thoughtless word. And so this morning, it's to come and see and cry out for the mercy of the judge. Humble ourselves before God in repentance and faith. Second, do not fear powerful kingdoms. As we look at current events, the state of our world, we're reminded that God is the one who tears down kings and rulers. Pharaoh, his, his pyramids still stand today. Pretty impressive kingdom. But Pharaoh is nowhere to be seen, nor is his kingdom. Even the wicked kings of Israel and Judah 
couldn't point to their connection with the God of Israel, Yahweh, as protecting them. It happened with Babylon, the Persian Empire, Greco-Roman Empire. And as we look out today, we see all sorts of superpowers who flex their muscles of geopolitical strength. And we can be confident that we do not need to fear any kingdom, any power, any ruler. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And so this morning, fear and tremble before God Almighty. Third, don't doubt God's promises. In our longing, when we say, how long, O Lord, are you going to delay? Are you not going to answer? And in our age of instant gratification and on-demand programming and free one-day delivery, we hate waiting. We are impatient people. We can get everything we want, all the answers we want, one click away. Or we say, hey Siri, and then it tells us the weather or whatever else. But don't mistake God's delayed answers as his inability to answer. A thousand years is like a single day or night to God. So whether the dark night of the soul is going on for seven days or seven years or 70 years, We can trust in him. God is still faithful to carry out his promises to his people. The fall of Babylon fulfills God's word given to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2. Time has fully expired for Babylon. And this was the first domino that would fall, that would ultimately culminate in the coming of Jesus Christ into the world to establish his dominion that is an everlasting dominion, his kingdom that would go from generation to generation. And what we ought to see when we look at Daniel 5 is that God holds all things, all time in his hands. He holds each one of us. He holds all kings and rulers. And we do not need to doubt for a single moment minute what he's doing in our world. Even in our longings where we say, how long, O Lord? We can say, but he's holding all things in his hand. The the sands of the hourglass continue to fall. And, And not just for Jesus' first coming, but now for his second coming. There's a limited amount of time where God will be merciful. And that time is ticking. And so we have opportunity, brothers and sisters, to share this good news for those around us. Their time is ticking. It may not be like Belshazzar, but their time is ticking as well. The fall of Babylon is the first domino in the chain reaction that climaxes in the first coming of Jesus. And when the second coming of Jesus arrives, will we have seen the writing on the wall? Let's be ready, not just in following him, but let's be ready in opening our mouths and holding out to a world hope everlasting. Let's pray. Father, we want these truths to sink deep into our own hearts so that we might have the very spirit of God empowering us, filling us, so that we might proclaim this very truth 
to a world that is in need. Help us, we pray. Help us delight in you. Help us to see you more clearly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.